1: This is a this is an interesting situation to be in right now because there's by my count, there's approximately 10 people in the room and there's there's more than that not in the room correct yeah wow and a lot of you are my family so thank you um for (laughs) for (laughs) for spending Sunday afternoon with me uh digitally in this context uh one of the things I'm grateful for stepping into this moment is that I've got about a year and a half of pandemic teaching under my belt so I'm very much used to looking at a blank screen and hoping that someone is listening and that what I'm saying is at least partially meaningful. Um, so I just wanted to give a brief introduction to myself for those of you who don't know myself or my family. We started coming here a few months ago probably three months ago um, in the fall and we've loved the chances we've had to be here as much as they number probably three I, I think because of <laughs> child sickness slash outbreak situations and all those sorts of things been unable to be to be present but my my wife Nadine uh, my son George and my daughter Eowyn are all very uh, pleased to be a part of this this community and we're hoping to be a more engaged and present part of it as it becomes a healthy option to do so um, as we're moving forward. So it's my my honor and, and privilege to speak about one of my favorite seasons and passages uh, in all of in all of the Christian calendar and in in all of scripture honestly, which is uh, the season, which is Epiphany, which is the season of light um, and grand revelation around Christ, as the name would imply. Um, And sort of the theme of this, the season of Epiphany that follows Christmas is essentially like, now that Christ is here, who is he and what is happening? Um, And the main passages that deal with that in the lectionary that we have are the one that I'm speaking on, which is from Matthew 2, featuring The magi from the east, there's the transfiguration, and then there's also the baptism. So in each of these cases, we have this grand revelation of something about what God is up to in Christ. And usually each of these features light in some way. So with that in mind, I'm going to read through uh, our passage for today, which which is Matthew 2 verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote, you, Bethlehem land of Judah by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah because you will come because from you will come one who governs who will shepherd my people Israel then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time the star had first appeared he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search carefully for the child when you found him report to me so that I too may go and honor him when they heard the king they went And look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. They opened their treasure chest and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route." This is the word of the Lord. Um, I have a a long-standing relationship with this passage. I've preached probably six times in my life in total, and three of them now have been on this very passage. Part of it is because of when it shows up in the year, that epiphany always follows Christmas, which is when, if ever there was a time that pastors were overworked, It is probably that season, and so substitute preaching is ideal, following it directly. Um, And of the six times I preach, yeah, three of them have been on this passage, and each time I come back to it, I I find something new, and there's a different angle and uh, detail to the story that catches my attention. And I was reminded of um, an encounter I had with an indigenous elder uh, about a year and a half ago as a part of, Um, some professional development I was doing and he was talking about how he taught plants to his granddaughter and at first they would walk past them when she's very young and he'd point out the flower and she would notice the flower and the color and they would talk about that and then the next season they would come back or the next year they would come back and they would see it but now they would look at different details that were present and as she grew the depth of detail they would discuss the plant would grow and this was the same with with different plants and in the end he taught her how to use the plant for, for healing or for its many purposes depending on what it was. The last, the most clear example I remember from this story was that he taught her that if you chewed the leaf of this plant when you had a bee sting you could leave it on your skin and it would heal the pain or relieve the pain and then pull the stinger out once it had dried and my, my colleagues and I asked like, you know, what plant is this? This sounds amazing. And he said, I don't know if you're allergic to it or not. And so I'm not gonna tell you if you stick that on an open wound, you could die. We thought that is also wise, but the way that we come back to these these biblical passages over and over and over again in the same season as we as we see them, though our understanding, our capacity to understand and our experiences grow, there are new things to be gleaned, whether it's in the basics, you can always come back to a flower and still appreciate its beauty and its leaves, but also for the way that it can it can affect us. Um, so that's that's kind of the guiding thought that's that uh, that's taken me into this encounter with this passage. Um, and I think this time something that I, I can say confidently as we approach it is that this passage does such a great job of foreshadowing what Paul is writing about when he gets into his letters about this this grand and new vision that God is enacting in Christ for all of humanity to come together. And for us to get there, I want us to go back and start at the basics of this. And in this case, the, the, the basic question that I see is, who are the Magi? Because in this story, the Magi are actually the main characters. Jesus is sort of a static side character that is kind of motivating things but he's not the one on the journey here, and that's not what's being discussed. The main characters are the Magi. And this is really interesting because this is a gospel story. This is the first story in Matthew's gospel that's not a genealogy. And so something really interesting is happening that we have a main character that is not only not Jesus, but also not Jewish. And so, Neither is the star, for that matter, though it is an epiphany text. The star is not the the central part of this, even if every children's production I was a part of always sort of gave me that impression. But it is, we have these main characters of the Magi. And the key question is, who are they? And what informs our thoughts of who they are rarely is the text itself. A lot of the time it's, I don't know, like whatever flannel graph picture that you had, Maybe in Sunday school, if you're if you're a churchgoer, or like the silhouette that you see on like the front of you know a church's lawn or something like that, or even just the the 1870s hymn "We Three Kings," we have all of these cultural and sort of peripheral things that tend to inform the, our understanding of the text more than the text itself. And I think unlearning some of these things can be helpful, especially if. Um, so with my wife about this she's like every time I saw the magi they were portrayed as like old white men I was like there are not that many old white men who come from the orient around you know the year zero-ish and so there are there are a lot of things that, that can sit in our minds and that can end up as like filters for how we actually engage who these primary characters in the story are and so when we we look at it their very name in the text or in the in the Greek text as well is the Magi, which means, I think it, it's like, it's a priest who looks at stars, essentially. And the the word has a root, has its roots in Persian, a combination of two Persian words. And so we can tell by this and by a lot of um, the other guess, research that's gone into this, that these are likely, very, very, very likely, people who are Babylonian from that Mesopotamian region. And this has deep, deep significance to what this story means, especially as, as the first story that, that features Christ. We have these, these priests of another religion who come from the land of former oppressors. The Babylonians were the people who came, who destroyed the temple who sacked Jerusalem and carried off its people into slavery and exile. And the Gospel of Matthew, past the genealogy, starts with them bringing treasures back to, not Jerusalem, but to Bethlehem, to the new temple, which is Christ. This is a really, really bizarre and interesting story. These Magi are following a very old and worn route. When you get to the the Middle East, nothing really feels that new. Um, And these old trade routes are very, very well established. These people are coming along the same pathway that Abram uh, followed when he was called by God in Genesis. They're following the same route as the the exiles from Judea were following when they were restored. They're following (coughs) this path as, as Gentiles being brought out of their own exile and darkness. And so there's this deep significance that Matthew is trying to take foreigners and Gentiles and former oppressors and colonizers and bring them into the story of Israel as they are coming to lay the treasures at Jesus' feet. And this journey matters. And it matters because it leads us to the question of, like, since we have more of a sense of what these magi, who these magi are and the, the the historical and social depth that is involved in their journey, <coughs> what does this reveal about what God is up to here at the start of the Gospels? And the fact that we have Gentiles following the path of Abram, following the route of return from exile into this land, shows that God is extending an invitation to outsiders and to historical enemies. We see at the start of Matthew, the call to love your enemies, enacted by God in God's self, through an invitation that only foreigners would understand in deuteronomy there is an explicit command given by god not to be looking to the stars for signs it was law and there's been a lot of things as i was reading commentaries on this there are a lot of people especially in the like the post reformation 17th century sort of era who are just saying like who are taking some really uh, harsh statements on On the Jewish leaders at the time that they just didn't look up and see this bright shining light that was indicating what was going on. But the truth of the matter is they were being faithful to their religious tradition. They're being faithful to the commands of God in not looking to the skies for signs. But God put one there anyway to bring people outside in. And this says something profound and wonderful about God that at the start of This gospel, which ends with the command to go forth and make disciples of all nations. It starts with the nations being brought to Jesus in a language only they would speak. This is a very strange thing for God to do in light of all of the commands that we see in the Old Testament. But it gives us a clear sign that God is doing something new with Jesus arriving on the scene, that there is a change in something that's happening. And so, I just need to pause for a second. (coughs) The beauty that I see in this is, is not just the call to something new, but it's the fact that this act of worship by the Magi, and bringing gifts before Jesus, shows that what God is up to is more than just a spiritual act of reconciliation in the person of Christ. That with the coming of Jesus, all kinds of old boundaries, all kinds of old enmity are bound to meet their end. This is an act of of worship by the Magi in bringing these gifts in taking this journey and in following the star that results in a strange and small encounter of reconciliation between ancient racial and religious enemies. They go into the house where Mary is staying with her baby. Um, This scene reminded me a lot of, there was a scene from the Mandalorian where he finds out that little baby Yoda is like belongs with the Jedi and so his task is now to bring baby Yoda to the Jedi and he says you want me to bring this child to a race of enemy sorcerers and I thought of that immediately when I looked at this this part of the text where Mary is standing probably looking out the door and thinking I'm supposed to let this troop of enemy sorcerers into my house but she does and the result is joy and the result is this new encounter between outsiders and insiders in the promise, this new encounter between former enslavers, colonizers, and abusers, and these people who are now under someone else's boot. There is this strange act of of total reconciliation present in this little moment. And One of the things that I think is so beautiful about that, now as a member of this church and as a Canadian right now, when I look at where we are as a country, there is so much need for these strange and small encounters where ancient enmity, where ancient um, identities, especially I think of this as a white person, but where I would be tempted to try and hide or avoid thinking about these sorts of things because they require a lot of responsibility and time to look into, that when I look at this story, I see that God is always calling and creating space for us to move into places of vulnerability for the sake of healing. And that as much as it was not my generation that did any of these things there is still so much beauty in the journey if there is um, if we're willing to undertake it and just like for these magi this is hundreds of years after the exile and they came and they made this choice to be vulnerable in someone else's empire and in someone else's home And this is something that I do deeply value about this community. That This is one that is, that for, for whom reconciliation is something that is, is important. And I see in this text the fact that God in Christ is always doing new works of reconciliation, whether it's in individuals, whether it's writ large, or whether it's in overcoming the powers of sin and death. There are always new angles of reconciliation to be found when we look at the life of Christ and the people who are working around him. Part of the challenge is in looking at this text. And when I thought, like, what is the poison that needs to be drawn out of me today as I encounter this? um, Is that for myself and my family, this has been a really hard, hard year. And the challenge of faith sometimes is that you would like it to feel rewarding when things are hard. When death is all around you and when sickness seems to define everything. Um, And it's been a really disillusioning and, and painful experience, especially in the area of faith, I think. And the story gave me like a strange and frustrated hope as I encountered it. Because I think on one hand I look at the Magi and to me that's like a very deep and meaningful journey but when I look at the religious leaders in Israel I empathize with them I feel like you know for my family for myself we've been doing what we should we've been you know kind to our neighbors we've tried to be generous as people we've tried to raise our children in the way that they should go and in all these things still There have been, there's been what feels like no answer in the midst of deep pain and just a cry for something else. Um, But the hope that I see in this, in the midst of that is that I look at the story and I can trust that God is still speaking and acting. And sometimes the point is that I'm not supposed to be the one who sees it, that in this story, Part of what makes it so profound is that the religious leaders were not supposed to see the light. It was meant for somebody else. And in this season, if there's anything that's given some relief and some capacity for perseverance, it's the hope that God is working even though I can't see it. That God is doing works of healing and reconciliation even if it feels like I'm not the beneficiary of it. And in the midst of that, that I can still look at Christ and see that he entered every disappointment, every historical and social pain that he could. Because God seems to be interested in taking on our pain and grief rather than preventing it altogether, which I both I marvel at and I struggle with deeply in this. And yet, in the season, we celebrate that Christ has entered our darkness. And where there is darkness, light is always breaking through. And in that light, God is always extending a big invitation to those of us who are struggling, to those of us who are disillusioned, and to those of us who are well. The invitation of God is big and it is bright. Thanks be to God. We pray. God, we thank you that your word is full of mystery and that your word is full of light and that in these seasons we can bring Um, all of our experiences to you. And we can celebrate that every corner is known, whether our hearts, our minds, our lives, that we are known by you. And that in your wisdom, you are always doing things to bring people closer to you and to each other that there is always healing happening, that there is always a new journey to undertake. I ask for ourselves and for this community that you would lead us into this year, into wise action, into loving action, that your hope and your joy may fill us anew and our community as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Adam. I'm, that, I'm so happy we have this recorded because that was so beautiful. I want to listen again and again. Um, this as a benediction for this uh, last Sunday of our uh, Christmas season. Um, we don't have communion, but next week it will begin again uh, with a new series on uh, the body and embodiment. Um, but to end our service today, um, this is a, a, a p- blessing for Epiphany by Jan Richardson called For Those Who Have Far to Travel. And um, it goes like this. If you could see the journey whole, you might never undertake it. Might never dare the first step that propels you from the place you have known toward the place you have not. Call it one of the mercies of the road, that we see it only by stages as it opens before us. As it comes into our being, step by single step. There is nothing for it but to go, and by our going, take the vows the pilgrim takes, to be faithful to the next step, to rely on more than the map, to heed the signposts of intuition and dream, to follow the star that only you will recognize, to keep an open eye for the wonders that attend the path, to press on beyond distractions, beyond fatigue, beyond what would tempt you from the way. There are vows that only you will know, the secret promises for your particular path, and the new ones you will need to make when the road is revealed by turns you could not have foreseen. Keep them. Break them. Make them again. Each promise becomes part of the path. Each choice creates the road that will take you to the place where at last you will kneel to offer the gift most needed the gift that only you can give before turning to go home by another way.